Uh, so welcome to this opening uh, public lecture at LSE's Summer School of 2012. My name is Eric Eister, and I'm a co-director of the economics program here at the Summer School. And I hope that you've all been enjoying uh, the first half of your courses over the past uh, week and a half, and uh, that you've also uh, come to appreciate and understand what London summer uh, actually means uh, for us. Um, of course, um, those of you who are, uh, who are economists uh, in the audience will have had uh, rational expectations about uh, the cold and rain, and I'm sure you will have uh, packed uh, your bags for London uh, appropriately. Um, so more seriously, actually economics and meteorology have more in common uh, than you might at first uh, appreciate. Meteorologists have an understanding that uh, the current dismal weather is caused by the position of the jet stream, and yet they're not very good at predicting how that jet stream is going to change its position over the weeks and months uh, ahead. In a similar way, economics has a pretty good understanding of the causes of unemployment, but we economists are not very good at predicting how the unemployment rate is going to change in the weeks and months ahead. And so what I hope uh, in today's lecture Professor Kwa will show us is he'll cut through some of the transitory fluctuations and randomness that impede both meteorology and economics, and I dare say all of the social sciences, to show us uh, a deeper understanding of economic development uh, and growth. So Professor Kwa is the Kuwait Professor of Economics here at LSE. He did his undergraduate degree at Princeton, his PhD at Harvard, began his academic career as an assistant professor at MIT before moving here uh, to LSE. He has made uh, numerous pioneering advances in economic theory, in macroeconomics, ranging from economic growth and inequality to economic geography and uh, the business cycle. More than most academic economists, uh, Professor Kwa has felt uh, brave enough to venture outside of academia and share some of his knowledge of economics with non-economists. I think his bravery might have something to do with the fact that in recent years, he's won both silver and gold medals in the British Taekwondo Championships. So he feels a little more comfortable in alien crowds than, than the rest of us do. Um, so Professor Kwa spreads his insights in uh, numerous publications, public lectures, he has a blog, and he's even on Twitter. When he taught uh, Economics One for several years at LSE, he inspired what can best be described as a cult-like following among uh, first-year undergraduates, and I think you're going to see uh, why. So Professor Paul will speak to us for 45 minutes, after which we'll have uh, 30 minutes of time for questions. So please join with me in welcoming Professor Denny Paul. Thank you, Eric, for that very kind introduction. Uh, welcome again, everyone, to the London School of Economics and to the LSE Summer School. I have, it's only tonight, this evening, that I've had the good fortune to share a stage with Eric. Eric and I work on quite different things. Eric is among the world's experts on microeconomics, the behavior of individual decision-making units. And what I work on is, in some ways, the opposite extreme of that. I work on large things in macroeconomics, large things, not in the sense that they're always very important, but in the sense that they are the kinds of large things that sometimes 
I joke that macroeconomics, the kind of macroeconomics that I do, is the kind of macroeconomics you can only do when you step off of our planet and look down on our Earth to try and understand the movements, the volatility, the dynamics that I am, uh, the, the kinds of things that I find interesting to work on. So this evening, Eric will be able to correct me when I go too far overboard in the opposite direction. What I want to do is to talk about the great powers and the state of the global economy. I think it would be someone who is extremely sheltered, who does not appreciate that the way the world economy is today makes all of us in a highly insecure position. And one of the things that we turn to, one of the, things, one of the reasons we turn to economists is to try and shed some understanding on this global insecurity. Now, the kind of understanding that many macroeconomists have tried to reach for is no longer really the same toolkit that we grew up studying, that we grew up learning, and that we, many of us grew up writing technical papers on. But there are groups of us who are reaching into many different areas, psychology among them, history, another, international relations, a third, to try and understand what's happening in the global economy. And it is the third of these, the in international relations aspect, that as you might suspect, when I say great powers, that I want to turn my attention to. Now this is not something that economists traditionally find easy to do. When we talk about international relations, we're talking about relations between entire nation states. And many of us have trouble enough understanding how groups of five people interact and engage with each other, much less how entire nation states do that. But of course there are economists, scholars, social scientists who try and think about this issue. And among them would be perhaps the greatest economic historian of the modern era, Charles Kindleberger. Charles Kindleberger's ideas are especially relevant today among other things that he worked on was the economics of the Great Depression. He was focused in his historical studies on what made the entire global economy plunge into economic stagnation for a period of between five, 10 years during the Great Depression. And the ideas that he came up with are ideas that economists like Brad DeLong, Barry Eichengreen, to some extent, Ken Rogoff, Carmen Reinhardt, and many others are going back to do. And again, these are using ideas that don't traditionally fall within what we technical macroeconomists typically study. Now, where Charles Kindleberger's writings on economic history gains traction in terms of international relations is through something known as hegemonic stability theory. Now that's a mouthful, but it's a simple idea. It says that when we look out at the world, the world is a better place, it is a more stable place, it is a more rapidly growing, secure place, when the global economy is not fractured into many different competing nation states, but that there's a single nation state that's the dominant world power. 
Now, such an idea, of course, flies in the face of the microeconomics, the traditional microeconomics that we know, where we think competition is what produces the best outcomes. But in Kindleberger's reasoning, and in current writings by, again, economists like Brad DeLong and others, hegemonic stability theory helped us understand why the world economy went into depression in 1929. It helped us understand how the world economy came out of that depression. And it helped, it helped us understand what's happened in the world since 2008. The one nation state that is the dominant world power, the global hegemon, acts as the world's police officer. That nation state enforces the rules of international engagement and interaction. That global police officer looks out for the interests of those nation states that are smaller and less powerful. That global hegemon is the lender and the consumer of last resort. It makes sure that Keynesian aggregate demand never becomes deficient. That global hegemon, this one nation state that's the dominant world power, stabilizes the flow of global spending and liquidity. It pumps out the global money supply. It engages in quantitative easing at a global level if need be, and it rescues the world economy. Now, under hegemonic stability theory, this intersection between macroeconomics, economic history, and international relations, what we need in the world is a global hegemon. Okay. The question that Brad DeLong, Barry Eichengreen, and others ask is, what's happened to the global hegemon? Where is it that now resides global power? Okay. In the words of maybe a slightly more modern-day philosopher, Spider-Man, the amazing Spider-Man and his circle of friends, with great power comes great responsibility. So where's the great power and where's the responsibility that's saving the world economy? What I want to do with this evening's lecture is to take on this topic, address its ramifications with some empirical evidence, ask whether its assumptions are appropriate, and then try and evaluate whether the spate of recent economic writings on how we need a global hegemon to rescue the world out of this current depressed state is really still the right solution, the way that it was in the 1930s. Because when you look at the world, and here is where, as I warned you, I would have to step off of our planet to try and understand the global movements that we're thinking about. If you look at this picture of the world, well, First things first, it's a picture of our planet, of the nighttime sky of our planet, taken by NASA satellites. It's obviously a false image. The world does not all fall into darkness all at the same time, but this is constructed through a sequence of snapshots that NASA satellites took as they circled our planet. The reason I put this up is because the nighttime sky shows lights on our planet. And where lights appear on our planet, that's where people live, that's where people play, and on the planetary scale that we're looking at, where they live and where they play is where they work, is where they create value, where they add value and they create wealth, where they generate economic activity. 
And the first thing, among the first things that strikes you on looking at our planet, our global economy, for this is what the snapshot is of, when we look at our global economy, the first things that should strike you is the massive luminosity that lights up North America and Western Europe. This picture tells us that no matter what everybody else says about the world, no matter what Jim O'Neill and Goldman Sachs say about BRICS, no matter how much rhetoric comes from East Asia and elsewhere in the world, the massive luminosity, the massive amount of wealth and value being created still resides in this picture along the transatlantic axis, along that imaginary line that divides, that sits in between North America and Western Europe. And yes, there's activity going on in Europe. You know, there are people obviously lighting up the nighttime sky as they burn the midnight oil, answering our questions about our Dell computers that are not rebooting properly when we call the call centers. They're, and they're engineering insurance claims for different airlines. They're doing all the things that we've back office into the Indian subcontinent. But again, that is a tiny fraction of the luminosity that we see in North America and Western Europe. And yes, Japan in this, uh, in this map still shows as a flare, as does the eastern seaboard of China, but most of global economic activity, according to this picture, still rests on either side of the transatlantic axis. And if you measured up the luminosity, or if you cross-tabulated this with Google Earth, you would find that this picture tells us that 70% of global wealth and value being created sits on either side of the transatlantic axis. So if we're looking for a global hegemon, according to Kindleberger's hegemonic stability theory that will save the world, it will have to come from either North America or Western Europe, and actually, most likely, the United States. And that's where hegemonic stability theory tells us will save the world economy. But if that's all there was to the story, why is the world in the current state that it is? Well, our mind quickly goes back to things that all of us know the narrative on now. I want to bring this up as an extreme, applica as an extreme application of hegemonic stability theory. I want to unpack it and then extract some more general lessons from this. And what this event is, is the 2008 global financial crisis, the largest single economic event of the last seven decades. The global financial crisis resulted in trillions of dollars of stock market, housing, other financial wealth being destroyed. It threw millions of people into unemployment. It fractured the financial system. It destroyed the integrity that many of us, integrity and respect and admiration that many of us had held for financial institutions, the financial system, and to some extent, sovereign governments. It's had massive implications. Now, about six months after Lehman Brothers collapsed, Ben Bernanke, chairman of the Board of Governors Federal Reserve System in the United States, pointed out how, yes, you might think that this global financial crisis, while it's happening around us in the US financial markets, in Western European financial markets, we see the results of this financial crisis from over-enthusiastic investment bankers pushing subprime mortgage loans. We see the financial engineering that, went, that happened through these same bankers pushing out collateralized debt obligations, CDO squares, CDSs, and the whole alphabet soup of financial instruments. But in Bernanke's reasoning, 
And in many people's reasoning, who were part economic historian, it's impossible to understand this crisis without reference to global imbalances, without reference to global changes in trade and capital flows. Now, what did Bernanke mean by this? I want to follow the line of thinking that this phrasing initiates, take us through a reasoning that gives us a role for the global hegemon, and then ask if where we've gotten to is a sensible stage to reach in our analysis, a sensible stage from which to begin global policy analysis and global governance. Global by global imbalance, what Bernanke and many and almost all economists mean is how the global trading system seemed by the late 2000s to fracture into two halves. Now the entire global trading system is closed. So when we say it fractures into two halves, what we mean is that one side of the global trading system began to show large, persistent current account deficits. They were importing more than they were exporting, roughly speaking, twisting the economic accounting a little bit. Roughly speaking, these countries were consuming more than they were producing. They were going into debt. So one part of the global economy began to show these large persistent trade or current account deficits. The United States economy was one of them. But because the world is a trade, closed trading system, if one part of the world shows current account deficits, another part of the world has got to show surpluses. So when we said, when we all economists referred to global imbalances in the early 2000s, what we referred to was how the global trading system seemed to fracture into two halves, a part that showed persistent deficits and a part that showed large and similarly mirror image persistent surpluses. Let's just check out what Bernanke meant when he said we've got to pay attention to these global imbalances. Well, here is part of what he saw. This is a graph that shows in the blue line the US trade deficit. So you'll notice that the blue line rises from the 1980s, 1990s, when the US trade accounts were roughly in balance, to explode quite dramatically in the late 1990s to a peak of in excess of 800 billion US dollars. Now we need to put some perspective on this. 800 billion US dollars is about 7% of US GDP. That doesn't seem very much. That's just seven cents to the dollar. What's the big deal with this large persistent current account deficit? Well, also on this graph, I have put the red line, which is India's gross domestic product. And remember, India at this point is a country of 1.2 billion people. The workforce is about 750 million, so let's call it a billion just to round it up. So India's GDP was the amount of economic value that was being generated by a billion people. Now you'll notice that in this graph, the blue line exceeds the red line at one point in the early 2000s, about 2004. Unpack that in economic words. What does that say? That says that in 2004, the US economy was eating one India more than it was producing. That's how large the scale of global imbalances got on just the United States side. The US was eating an entire India more than it was producing. Now you'll notice that that blue line now has dipped. It dipped right after the 2008 global financial crisis, but lo and behold, it started to rise again most recently. Now we haven't yet unpacked why 
this is something that's making us think about the global financial crisis, but if Bernanke and other economists were right, the fact that this imbalances have not gone away but have started to rise again, if this is one side of the imbalances, that gives us a hint as to what's going to come in the near future, that the global economy is not out of the woods by any means but seems to be recreating the same situation, if Bernanke is right, the same situation that we had going into the 2008 global financial crisis. Now, I said that the world is a closed trading system. So on this side, we've seen the US economy. What's on the other side? Well, on the, the other side are countries like China, Germany, Russia, and Brazil. So this shows in one chart the United States trade deficit going off into the negative region. So I've flipped that around so that we can see it better. On the other side, we see China, most notably, but then some other countries as well, being the other side of the pattern of global imbalances. If global imbalances were, in this Bernanke reasoning, instrumental for how the 2008 global financial crisis came about, this is something we need to pay attention to. Now, we've seen what the large facts are. Let's rehearse the narrative that we know from, from, from those years immediately following the global financial crisis. The narrative went as follows. Yes, in advanced financial markets, investment bankers, subprime mortgage prospects, all the actors in these financial markets undertook certain kinds of actions. They overextended themselves in loans. They overextended themselves in creating fancy new financial products. Regulators and ratings agencies were maybe a little bit asleep on the job. They didn't rein in enough of this. Maybe there was moral hazard and imperfect information problems going on as individuals within investment banks that drew in the highest profits from pushing these structured financial products were the ones that people paid most attention to because they were the ones bringing in most profit for the bank. Those members of many investment banks and elsewhere in the financial system urging caution were not you know, given as much uh, floor time because they weren't the ones generating the high incomes and high profits. We can rehearse those arguments, but we realize that for all of that to work, for all of those, for all of those arguments to really kick in, take bite, they had to have financial resources to play with. And here, we remember, we remember now, is where Bernanke's warning about global imbalances comes in. Because part and parcel of Bernanke's warning about global imbalances is that when we see these patterns of trade deficits and trade surpluses, what they come with is a corresponding flow of financial resources. Those countries like China and others running large trade surpluses were sending out cheap and plentiful savings. And because they were sending out these cheap and plentiful savings, this increase in financial resources flooded global financial markets. And it is this flow of from the global savings club that brought about the inflow of financial capital into financial markets that became, in the language of the times, the jet fuel ignited by investment bankers. And it is that that created the trillion dollar infrastructure that unwound through the 2008 global financial crisis. So if this reasoning about global imbalances is right, it is, in fact, one of the causes of the global financial crisis. And the fact that we've seen this large 
imbalances continue makes us wary of what the world, is gonna, world economy is going to look like going forwards. Now, having thought through this narrative, this actually fairly standard narrative now, global imbalances, West, you know, advanced financial market overextension, the global financial crisis unwinding, when house prices started to slow down the steep ascent. This makes us think hegemonic stability theory tells us that the world's police officer should step in and do something about this. Don't just stand there, do something. What should the global officer, police officer do? What should the global hegemon do? They should ask, whose fault was this? And having looked at the pattern of global imbalances and understood the narrative, they would say, their reasoning would go, well, you know, there were the emerging economies, China, Russia, Brazil. They were piling up huge reserves. They were exporting more than they were importing. They were saving too much. One of the ways in which they were saving too much, one of the ways in which they were exporting so much, was they had undervalued their currencies to increase exports. The Chinese renminbi, in this reasoning, is grossly undervalued. It makes Chinese exports cheap. That's why the United States and elsewhere in the world are buying Chinese exports that is contributing and exacerbating global imbalances. Why are the Chinese and other emerging economies doing this? Well, they're doing this because they want to accumulate foreign exchange to provide insurance for themselves. They remember what their experiences had been in periods like the 1997 Asian financial crisis. They did not want to be out of financial reserves, so they accumulated these excess reserves. But as a result of this overaccumulation of excess reserves that seeped onto global financial markets, and that was that jet fuel underlying the global financial crisis. So once again, the way the reasoning goes, hegemonic stability theory says we should stop this. We should get this. We should reverse this situation. One of the immediate ways we can do that, if we follow that reasoning, is we get the Chinese or other emerging economies to start appreciating their currency. And here is the smoking gun. Here's the US bilateral trade balance against China alone. This is what the United States was importing more than it was exporting relative to China. And right there is the steep descent of the United States trade balance into deficit territory, here accounting for perhaps 25, 30% of the overall US trade deficit. So here's the smoking gun for why the global hegemon needs to go out there, fix the international financial architecture, change, get the Chinese to appreciate the renminbi. This will fix global imbalances. It will restore the global economy to balance. And this is what hegemonic stability theory tells us we ought to be doing. Okay. And there's evidence, there's popular evidence that supports how this idea, even if people out there don't appreciate its significance, don't appreciate the reasoning that goes into this, don't appreciate that you know, it is a, an analytical social science theory that tells us how to think about the world. There's plenty of evidence out there that suggests that ordinary people are already cottoning on to what's going on in the global economy. So we go back to our transatlantic axis, that map of the world that straddle where most of the global economies straddle this 
imaginary line in the Atlantic Ocean, Western Europe and the United States. You can go out there and you can survey people on both sides of the transatlantic axis and you can ask them, your national interest, your national economic interest, what do you think is most important for how your national interest is going to evolve? What do you think is affecting your national economy the most? Well, over 70% of Americans in, well, gosh, in your age group, 18 to 34, over 70% of Americans think that it is Asia that's now the most important region for their national interest. It is not Europe. It is not here in the United Kingdom, despite our special relationship with the US. It is instead Asia. So the way Americans look now in this age group, where the next Steve Jobs is going to come from, leapfrogs Western Europe and the United Kingdom all the way to Asia, in a way that the old world, Europeans, have not fully caught on yet, because only 40% of Europeans think this. All this seems consistent with the picture that we're building up that's calling for a rest restoration of hegemonic stability. Here's the part that's a little bit frightening. When you ask these same people, since you've, uh, since you've said that Asia is where the most significant force for your national interest is, do you consider that a good thing or a bad thing? They are a trading partner. They give us cheap trainers and refrigerators and air conditioners. They're lending money to us in huge gobs. Does China represent an economic threat or an opportunity? Well, 63% of Americans consider China a threat, double the number that consider it an opportunity. And in the old world, here in Europe, that ratio is reversed. Europe might still be a little bit more inward looking, but it has warm, fuzzy feelings towards how the rest of the global economy is growing, and it does not see the possibility for acrimony and aggression, the same way that Americans perceive in this survey. So this quick trapes through hegemonic stability theory and the evidence supporting it and its application in the global financial crisis tells us that there is a lot of support for a direction of travel that says we should fix, we the Americans should fix the global economy. So we are the global hegemon, and moreover, that's going to be a good thing to do because this will restore balance. It's exactly what Kindleberger said had happened right after, you know, right after the Great Depression. Force the renminbi to appreciate. Force renminbi evaluation. Now, I would end, if I ended here we would then walk away thinking, well, hegemonic stability theory tells us this is the way forwards. And what we have heard US lawmakers, the rhetoric in the, US, in the upcoming US elections pushes towards forcing the Chinese or other trading economies to up their game, appreciate the renminbi or whatever other currency, that's the right thing to do. In the few minutes, in the 15 minutes or so, if I have that, Eric, uh, that if I've got left, I, would tr I want to try and suggest this is not the right approach to thinking about the global economy. That following Hegemic stability theory takes us in a certain direction of travel, but I want to now provide evidence that suggests it's actually a misguided direction of travel.
Okay. This is the way the world might have looked in the story that I've spent the last 15, 20 minutes describing. Okay. This is a cartoon from Barry Rittles. And apologies to those of you who've traveled all the way from Australia to come attend summer school because it's just a bunch of kangaroos there. And Mexico mostly provides people who do laundry and lawns for America. Canada is mostly freezing cold, is uninhabited, and the Chinese are still communists. I won't say what they think of Europe. But this is a perception of hegemonic stability theory. Maybe this isn't the right way to view the world. And why not? I now want to, in, as much, in the time that I've got, give you as many reasons based on empirical evidence that seeks to overturn this view of the world that I've just developed. Um, okay, let's go back to that smoking gun. Here is the smoking gun that says it was the, it's the Chinese Roman peace, the pattern of trade between the United States and China that's responsible for 30% of the US trade deficit and therefore single-handedly responsible more than any other for causing global imbalances. And to fix this, we've got to get the RMB to revalue, to appreciate. It's the US bilateral trade balance against China. Now, for the, for the fun of it, I also went and got the US bilateral trade balance against, in red, the European Union, and in green, the oil exporting countries. Now, they show the same pattern. Between 1980 and the mid-1990s, the United States was roughly in trade balance against everyone. And they all went into deficit subsequently. The United States went into deficit against all these different parts of the world subsequently. China, most of all. But here's the interesting, here's one interesting thing. Suppose you look at the European Union and the oil exporting countries and you add the two of them. What you get is this violet or purple line that we now realize tracks exactly the US bilateral trade deficit against China we no longer are able to explain this pattern of US bilateral trade deficits based on just an undervalued renminbi. Nor can we explain this pattern of bilateral trade deficit based on the idea that Asian thrift was driving the global savings glut. If anything, the United States was running bilateral trade deficits against both of these parts of the world about equally. And if your eye, you cast your eye over the, the purple line and the blue line, you'll notice that not only is the direction of the slope roughly the same, the secular movement going into ever larger bilateral trade deficit the same, even the short-term fluctuations almost exactly track each other. And it's very difficult to look at this picture and say it was an undervalued renminbi or emerging economies having some kind of buildup of foreign, of foreign reserves or some Un, uh, some unexplained fear um, of in providing insurance for themselves, it seemed more like it was the US economy that was driving the pattern of bilateral trade deficits against other parts of the world. And when you look at the US bilateral trade balances against all different parts of the world, yes, they fluctuate. Sometimes they rise, sometimes they fall, but they're roughly all about flat. They're roughly about equal. There's a US, large US trade deficit, not because bilaterally, something has gone out of whack. But there's a large US trade deficit because the United States has started to consume much more than it produces against everybody in the world. Stephen Roach, former chairman of Morgan Stanley Asia, 
describes how the United States, and currently at Yale University, describes how, yes, the U.S. has a trade problem, but it's not a bilateral trade problem against China. The U.S. has a multilateral trade problem against hundreds of countries. And if the policy that you undertake is to force China to appreciate the renminbi, all that you do is you end up hurting the U.S. consumer because it diverts what the U.S. consumer wants to buy into less efficient, more costly producers and away from China. A second reason why the global hegemonic stability model of the world might not be good, we should ask, is it good for the world? How has the global economy changed in this time? Well, we think we know what it looks like. Here is the picture of the global economy. Right there, you've got the 75% of the global economy straddling the two sides of the transatlantic axis. Well, actually, this is a NASA satellite photograph, and you realize that NASA has stopped taking these photographs. This is a picture pulled off NASA's satellite database from 30 years ago. This is a picture from 1980, and the world has changed. Now, we no longer have NASA satellite photographs to update this picture, but what we can do is something else. Here's that something else. If we look at what the world looked like, and we went to all the different parts of, on Earth that was generating economic value, we don't have NASA satellites, but I have recourse to a poor man's NASA satellite, and that is Google Earth. I can go to Google Earth, find 700 locations on Earth where I can track economic value, cross-tabulate that with the World Development Report from the World Bank, and then I've generated over 700 points on our planet where economic value is being generated and where I can track that over three decades. If I recreate that NASA satellite photograph by going back 30 years and asking where was economic value being generated? Well, it's being generated all over the world in the way that that satellite photograph depicts. But what you can do is be a little bit more precise than that. You can actually calculate the world's economic center of gravity based on the location of these 700 points on Earth. And if you do that in 1980, where you would find the world's center of gravity is that black dot in the middle of the Atlantic Ocean on the transatlantic axis. To no one's surprise, since most of the global economy was Western Europe and the United States, about half and half, the world center of gravity was about halfway in between them. But the question that is more interesting to us is not what the world looked like 30 years ago, but what the world looks like now. And here is how the world has been changing. This is a sequence of black dots that shows the world's center of gravity at different points in time, coming forwards in time. I'll let it loop for a bit as I describe what's going on here. The sequence of black dots begins in the middle of the Atlantic Ocean. Every three years, I put out a new point. This tracking shows an eastwards movement. That eastwards movement is coming from the rise of India, China, and the rest of East Asia, Australia, New Zealand, act economic activity on the eastern side of our planet. As the east rises, the global center of gravity is pulled in that direction because more and more GDP, more and more economic value is being generated in that part of the world. This tracking eastwards does not happen monotonically. It doesn't happen linearly. It goes back and forth now and then. But in the main, the direction of travel is eastwards. In the last 30 years, the sequence of black dots shows that the world center of gravity has moved 5,000 kilometers eastwards. It's moved from west of London to east of London. It's traversed the entire length of the Mediterranean Ocean. By last year, it was east of Helsinki, east of Bucharest, east of Izmir, Turkey. And as a little light-hearted, fun play, 
I asked, what would this picture look like if all these different 700 locations continue under reasonable assumptions, fluctuated but continued to grow in the way that the last 30 years experience shows? Well then, what happens is this center of gravity does not shoot off the Asian continent into the Pacific Ocean. Instead, what you'll see, the sequence of red dots shows the forward extrapolation going forwards from 2012. And the sequence of red dots clusters. It ends up clustering on the boundary between India and China. So the way the world looks is that it's changed from a transatlantic axis world 30 years ago to where the world center of gravity is now east of where we are. It's right about in the Gulf at this point. And within our lifetimes, it will have reached longitude that's roughly Singapore's, that's roughly East Asia's, which leads us to the question, the world center of gravity is very soon, within our lifetimes, going to be 10 time zones east of Washington, DC. And when it is in that location, even if we subscribe to hegemonic stability theory, is it still appropriate that the same national economy, the United States or a combination of the United States and Western Europe continue to be the one that dictates global policy because after all, what is good for the world? Now, if I may, can I just have five more minutes, Eric? So I want to finish up now. I've raised questions for you on hegemonic stability theory. I would like to push it further and suggest that actually it would be the wrong thing for the world if we went back to what the world used to get out of the previous Great Depression. Should we force renminbi revaluation as the world's policemen might want us to do? Well, there's a little bit more detail in this table that one can really go into, but it comes from, this is a table that's been pulled out of a recent IMF study where they calibrated the general equilibrium model of the global economy, and they asked what would happen in different parts of the world if there were a 20% appreciation of Chinese currency of the renminbi. Now, the first two columns shows what happens with the 20% real appreciation. That's what concerns us. And we see that what would happen in China is that China would suffer a decline in its GDP of between 2 and 3% in the very short term. In the medium term, it would suffer a decline in GDP of about 9%. This would be disastrous for China. Look at what happens in the rest of the world if this 20% RMB appreciation occurred. Nothing. Close to zero. This RMB appreciation would only hurt China, and it would do practically nothing for the rest of the world. And why is that, why is that important? In the last 30 years, China has been responsible, China and East Asia, have been responsible for more than 100% of poverty reduction in the world. China and East Asia have been responsible for stabilizing the global economy in the last two economic downturns. In the 2008-2009 recession, China and India and the rest of East Asia contributed in absolute growth more than 100% of what the US economy shrank by. Put that a different way, if it weren't for East Asia, the global economy would have suffered double the decline in GDP that it actually experienced. And when we look forwards, what's happening in, for economics in this age of austerity, we're faced with a situation now where Europe is laden with debt. There might be disagreements about that exact number, the significance of that number, but there is no question that the debt-GDP ratios in Europe have been high and have been high for a long time. And the arguments about economic policy today 
that's around growth versus austerity turn on not the side of people arguing for austerity because they're anti-growth, which miserable git could be against growth for the economy? The people who are arguing for austerity are worried that if you don't have austerity, then interest rates and the cost of borrowing are going to go sky high, as they have already started to do because of the large debt in, across Europe. Now, very quickly, let me just flash through the numbers. This is a picture that shows on the vertical axis the debt-GDP ratio of different countries in the European Union and in the Eurozone, and on the horizontal axis, the deficit-GDP ratio. While Greece obviously sits way up high above the pack in terms of a debt-GDP ratio, everybody else, far larger economies, the size of the ball here indicates the size of the economy, everybody else is not that far behind, not Germany, not France, not the United Kingdom. All of these economies are heavily laden with debt. And we are worried about this because debt and concerns about sovereign debt default definitely raise bond yields. They might not have already done that for the core countries, but they're certainly capable of doing that. To conclude, what should the world be thinking about when we go forwards in this world where the East has risen, has pushed, pulled the world center of gravity dramatically away from Washington DC, away from the transatlantic axis. We've got a middle Europe that is laden with debt and unable to undertake the kind of aggregate demand increases in government spending or increases in monetary policy for one institutional reason or another. Let me end with one possible solution to this, and a solution that takes as its inspiration what's happening to the only economic success in Western Europe at this point. That economic success remains Germany. Germany continues to be a successful, growing economy. Where is it getting growth from? It faces the same austerity growth trade-off that everybody else does. Its major export market outside of the United, outside of the Eurozone, Euro areas, the United States, and the United States remains mired in political paralysis and will, still, will very soon face its own austerity crunch. Where is Germany getting its growth from? So Eric, I will end with this one picture. This is a picture that shows Germany's exports. It shows in the blue line the history of Germany's exports to the United States. Outside of the Euro area, Germany's main export market had indeed been the United States. And then it shows a couple of other lines. What we see is that Germany's exports to the United States collapsed following the 2008 global financial crisis and has not recovered. Where Germany is getting its growth from is exporting to the green line. What is that green line? The green line is developing Asia. It's partly China, but it's not all China. Germany exports almost a third more to all of developing Asia than it does to China alone. Today, Germany's exports to China already exceeds Germany's exports to the United States. Germany's exports to the rest of developing, to developing Asia 
are about 20 to 30 percent higher than Germany's exports to the U.S. Now, Germany has been able to harness an engine of growth that is quite unexpected relative to a view of the world that says the transatlantic axis remains that that guides the global economy. To conclude then, pictures show that you know, the, the, there's evidence that shows that the rest of the world where actually growth is occurring, we see similar patterns of trade. The world's trading patterns have changed so that exports are moving east, and when those countries have somehow been able to do that, they remain pockets of success, even in the current depressed world. So what's our global hegemon to do? Well, we thought 15, 20 minutes ago, we thought we had a clear answer. Force the emerging economies to rebalance then I argued that that was not so clear. And there's a raft of reasons why that's not so clear. U.S. deficits are multilateral, not bilateral. When the world's center of gravity is no longer the transatlantic axis, being good for the world means being good for more than just the United States and Western Europe. And when we look around the world and we see where human welfare is being advanced most strongly, where greater stabilization of the global economy is occurring, all of that seems to be happening in the East at this point. Thank you very much. Okay. Um, so now, if, if any of you um, need to leave now, uh, this would be uh, the appropriate time. Uh, and for the rest of us, we'll move into uh, questions. So you can just quietly make your way out. And if you have a question, please um, raise your hand, and then uh, the people with the microphones will come over uh, to you. Hi. Uh, thanks a lot. If you go back to the report you showed where if China appreciated its currency, it would lose down to minus 8% in the short and the medium term. The two columns to the right were what it would be if you also had domestic rebalancing as well. In that scenario, the medium term outlook was negative 1%. Do you therefore support that uh, China should appreciate this currency if we have, I assume, US domestic rebalancing? And if so, how would you put that argument to China? Because they're still losing out by negative 1%, but it seems to be a win-win for the world. OK. Um, <clears throat> one would like whatever, you know, in the absence of a of a global hegemon who is somehow able to enforce an outcome that not everyone sees a clear win for themselves. In the absence of that, what we would like are solutions that benefit everyone, that are not just positive sum game outcomes, but are, you know, that actually provide an improvement in everyone's welfare. I think that at this point, China and, and its government already see the need themselves for a rebalancing of their economy. But it's going to be a rebalancing on terms that they themselves decide, not a rebalancing that comes enforced because the United States wishes their RMP to appreciate, and therefore they are then forced to undertake the other kinds of reforms. What are the reforms that are most dramatically needed in China? Well, a rebalancing of their economy westwards large part of the social and economic inequality in the Chinese economy comes not from inequality 
between people in one location, the way that we see it elsewhere in the world, but most of the inequality that we see in the Chinese economy comes from inequality between the western underdeveloped parts of China and the eastern crowded seaboard. Does the Chinese government or do Chinese policymakers or the Chinese economy itself already see a need for that rebalancing? Yes, because returns to capital are dramatically falling in the east coast of China. Manufacturing is overcrowded. They, what we need, what they need is to have this, what they need is to have the manufacturing industry moved westwards. To allow that to happen, transportation infrastructure needs to be improved. But with that, uh, what we need for that is even higher investment on the part of either the Chinese state or the private sector. So there's a, there's a natural force, there's a natural economic force already in place for that rebalancing to occur. I, what do I think? I think that that rebalancing will occur by itself, but whether the renminbi appreciation is the right policy globally, I think that's more controversial. Question here? Oh, yeah. uh, yes. Um, considering, if you will, uh, just for a moment, uh, Europe has, uh, uh, where I think rebalancing is, is arguably uh, very necessary, uh, if we could consider just for a moment as sort of a closed system, uh, Euros maybe just the Eurozone itself, where uh, trade balance, trade is more or less balanced overall. Um, do, you, do, you, do you think that uh, possibly in this closed system where Germany is certainly the, the hegemon, um, uh, Germany could allow for some um, revaluation through uh, possibly inflation, or if that those kind of things are necessary, would you uh, extend your argument that this is uh, not not the case? Yeah, I think that the problems within Europe, and I'm sure you know, perhaps Richard uh, and others will disagree, but the problems within Europe have to do with uh, with the different parts of Europe being so economically different at this stage. Labor productivity is massively different. Uh, their trade, the patterns of trade, both within Europe and outside of Europe, are dramatically different. When you compare countries like Germany and France to countries like, well, countries like Greece. Um, so, you know, that for that rebalancing to occur, what we need is some ability for all of Europe to be able to adjust internally. And we won't be able to do that keeping this integrated structure. What many people would like to see is a move towards greater fiscal transfers, greater fiscal guarantees within Europe, and that would be a way to rebalance and cut across these differences. That is something for the people to decide. Um, well, I can see a little assumption in your speech that the center of gravity will shift if China is going to be as prosperous for the next 20 years as it is today. So shall we factor, factor in the parameter that China's economic model may not be as sustainable as expected, just like what happened to Japan in the 1990s? Okay, thank you. So this is a question about whether China's uh, growth or East Asia's growth more generally will continue. Now, it's, it's difficult to make you know, statements with 100% confidence on this. What we can do is we can look at evidence now and ask what is the evidence that suggests a slowdown is likely? What's the evidence that suggests 
that the opposite might occur. But people who worry about the Chinese economy going the way of Japan suggest that um, China has overinvested because its investment now is in excess of 50% of GDP. It seems to have a massively overbuilt housing stock. Um, it's, you know, it's unable to generate enough domestic consumption. It's unable to rebalance internally. I don't think that the evidence is as strong as that. It's true that China's investment is now 50% of GDP. That's a very high ratio. Very few countries have been able to sustain that kind of high investment. But it strikes me that the right criterion for asking whether a country has overinvested is not to look at its investment GDP ratio, but to look at its investment per person. How much capital stock and how much new capital stock is being generated per worker? And when we do that, we realize that one of the reasons that the investment GDP ratio in China is so high is because GDP in China remains so low. Now, it's peculiar to say that because China, obviously, is already the world's second largest economy. But we also have to remember that it's 1.2 billion people. It's four times the size of the United States. When you calculate investment per capita, what you find is that investment per capita in China today is one-fifth that in the United States. It is one-seventh that of Japan at the, height of, at the height of the Japanese bubble. It has a long way on the upside to go before it reaches the kind of saturation that we saw in Japan. Do we see consumption in China rising? Dramatically so. On the eastern seaboard, when you break down China's consumption and savings patterns across different parts of China, what you see is that in the richer parts of China, consumption growth now exceeds income growth. And so the solution to China's over-savings problem, paradoxically, is to allow China to grow, to allow China to increase its income. Um, and there's other anecdotal evidence. You know, the Association of Retailers Worldwide will confirm that when foreign tourists come into their stores, per capita, the nationality that spends the most are mainland Chinese tourists. Mainland Chinese tourists, when they go abroad, sell, buy more per capita than any other nationality. The view that you know, Asian thrift will forever characterize Chinese economic growth is just not well founded. Uh, China's overhousing problem, it's true that you know, satellite, Google satellite, Google photographs and satellite photographs show that there are huge tracts of housing that remain empty in China. That's certainly true. But China remains a hugely populous country with over 500 million people still living in crowded conditions in the agricultural rural areas. Um, there will be very soon 200 million, other, 200 million fresh migrants who want to have residences in urban areas. These houses will easily be taken up as that migration continues. Moreover, when you, just for the sake of argument, you could try and do the same exercise for the United States. Take satellite photographs of the U.S. housing stock. Recognize that the U.S. population is only one quarter that of China's. Look at the number of vacant housing units in the United States economy. Scale that up by four to match the Chinese population. And actually, the number of empty housing units in the United States is larger than the number of empty housing units in China at this point. China has a long way to go on the upside before it can, before I think we have to worry about it slowing down the same way that Japan did. When Japan slowed down in the early to mid 1990s, it was already a first world country. China today remains poorer on average than nine countries in Africa. If China were located not where it is, but on the African continent, we would be looking at it 
as a candidate for foreign aid, not as a challenger for economic supremacy, or as a, as a candidate for a slowdown similar to that in Japan. Uh, hi, sorry. My question is more about the Eurozone and the current economic crisis. Um, in terms of the optimal currency area, um, you know, when you kind of look at, it, look at it, you know, they say America is one of the best examples of an optimal currency area. So is it your opinion, or I want to ask your opinion on the fact that will a euro actually work? Is there any point in really prolonging what's going on at the moment? You know, is, in, is it, will, will there be any foreseeable solution in this future? Because fundamentally, it's probably not an optimal currency area. Okay. Um, one of the reasons that it's not an optimal currency area is, this, is the low amount of labor mobility across uh, different member states at this point. One of the reasons for a low uh, rate of, of labor mobility across member states is not just cultural, but institutional. Pension schemes, employment laws, uh, hiring regulations all differ across the different member states still. So actual European companies that have bases of operations in different member states will complain about how difficult it is to move people who are willing to move across different branches of their operation. On that front, you know, on that, that very important front alone, uh, the Eurozone is probably not an optimal currency area, but it is an endogenous, evolving situation. As European Union law changes, as institutions change, as pension schemes change, that labor mobility might rise. What's a little bit more troubling, however, is when the transport of goods and services across national board, board boundaries does, has not risen as much as they have. And the lead candidate for the failure to ramp up trade in goods and services across the European Union, across different parts of the Eurozone, is actually Greece. That, together with the different performance in unit labor costs across different parts of Europe, would make it seem like it might be time to allow a little bit more flexibility in the way national exchange rates can behave across different member states in Europe. Um, so what do I think? I think that there are strong reasons for and against the, the single currency in the Eurozone. I think as a political project, it is uh, an admirable scheme. As a project that was intended to improve economic efficiency, to improve productivity across different parts of the Eurozone, across the Euro area, it remains admirable. There are obstacles that might, be, might not be insurmountable, but by the same token, there are niggling objections that where we don't understand why we haven't moved as far as we have. So I think it's a fine balance. If at this point, some of the calculations that I find most persuasive are that if the situation does not change, if reforms don't actually occur, then Germany will have to undertake a fiscal transfer on the order of 5% of its GDP to the poorer parts of the European Union. That is up to the German people to decide, but personally, I would find that unpalatable. Um, thanks. As we all know, the United States launched uh, several anti-dumping investigations into the product of China. So how do you think it as a trading policy? Will it um, truly save the United States economy, or is it just uh, a bad thing to do to hurt the both the 
both sides of the China and the United States economy. Thank you. I think those are important actions, but to date, they have been mostly posturing without very much real effect. They have to do with important commodities like chicken wings and rubber tires, and they haven't really you know, gained traction in terms of you know, the public imagination or in terms of real policy action. So I think we will see ripples like that continue to occur, but I don't think they will have huge impact on trade relations. Um, hi. Uh, in the last couple of decades of the 20th century, like um, at, um, countries in East Asia like Japan and South Korea had democratized while their economic was, uh, economies were growing really fast. And people like um, in the IR discourse, there's a lot of questions about the political system of China. So I was wondering, how do you understand like the important role like the Chinese government play when it, com when it, when it comes yeah. to uh, economic growth and like what kind of political impact do you see? Yeah, that, no, that's, that's a very good question. A um, number of things to, to say about this. One is that, again, you know, we, we, we remind ourselves of a number of facts about China's growth trajectory, actually about a lot of East Asia, because it's not just China. Many of these experiences are common across East Asia. Um, China, when it began this, China and East Asia, when you know the 1980s began, when we're looking at the first of our pictures there, you know, had over 850 um, million people living on less than a dollar a day, living in extreme poverty. In the last 30 years, China alone has brought 627 million of these out of extreme poverty and is moving them up rapidly into the middle income classes. China has a view that the number one basic human right is the freedom from poverty, freedom from economic insecurity, and it is obsessively focused on trying to deliver that as its primary goal. Um, and, if it, and if it feels that it has to, in the eyes of the rest of the world, perhaps cut corners on a number of other options that ought to be available to the Chinese citizenry. Having said that, we also appreciate that every year, 40 million mainland Chinese leave the mainland as tourists and every year, 40 million return. There's no, there's no massive exodus that says that, no, this is a police state that's clamped down, that I find it intolerable to live in. I leave, I come back. There are economic prospects. When the Pew Foundation in Washington, D.C. undertakes interviews and surveys around the world, among the question that it, questions that it asks citizens is, do you approve of the direction of travel of the government of your nation is taking. Do you approve, do you think it's going in the right direction in terms of economic policy, political, uh, uh, a political system, the judicial system, the whole package? When the Pew Foundation does this in China, for the last five to 10 years, the surveys have never returned anything less than 86% approval of the direction that the Chinese state is going. Okay, you might say, well, yeah, but when Pew went in, they weren't able to talk to all the people that they wanted. They weren't able to survey freely as they might. All that might be right. So, okay, so it's not 86%, it's probably 70%. When Pew undertakes the same survey in the United States and elsewhere, the approval rating of the government in the United States 
never exceeds 35%. So, yeah, okay, maybe it's not 35%, maybe people complain too much, so maybe it's 40%, but there's still a huge gap between a 70% approval of your nation's national government and a 40% approval. Now, this is not to say that, you know, the Chinese state is entirely blameless, has provided a clean slate for all its citizens. I think everyone agrees that much remains to improve. But do I come away from looking at the evidence, either on tourists, on travel, on visits to the mainland, on surveys, do I come away with the idea that, you know, this is a clamped down police state that is squeezing its people so that they are miserable and unhappy? No. It is, a, it is an economy with a purpose, delivering another several hundred million people out of poverty, achieving higher incomes, going towards higher levels of economic development. Um, I think that there are multiple pathways towards political approval. There are multiple pathways towards political legitimacy. And the systems of liberal democracy that we have, that we're most familiar with, that perhaps in IR theory, people contrast the most with, is but one. There are multiple pathways to do this. Systems like that in India, where the system of electoral democracy works with a slick efficiency that puts the rest of the world to shame, the way that they've used electronic, the way they've digitized and computerized the electoral system there, the speed with which they return the results of these elections. It's a well-functioning liberal democracy that in principle gives every person there the same voice in the running of the country. It remains vague, India remains vaguely dysfunctional. It's unable to pass the simplest of reforms that will improve the efficient workings of the economy. It is a fractured government that different coalitions can block the will of the prime minister. Practically nothing has happened positive economically in India in the last three years. I think there are multiple pathways where political and economic systems can mix in, in different combinations and still achieve outcomes that are citizenry will be satisfied with. Okay, this seems like an appropriate time uh, to, to end here. Um, we're going to be having a reception upstairs on the fifth floor in the senior common room. So for those of you who uh, had more questions for Professor Kwa and all of you, uh, please feel free to join us uh, upstairs and let us uh, thank him again for a very stimulating uh,